Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Friday, February 22nd, 2013, episode number 38, Natural Beekeeping with Ross Conrad. Hello everyone, this is Kevin England and I want to thank you for stopping by the Beekeeper's Corner. This is going to be a special bonus sidebar edition as I have a recording that's been in the queue waiting for processing since last October and I'm happy to get it out in front and center here. Our Peer New Jersey Beekeepers Association branch from the Northeast graciously hosted Ross Conrad for a session on natural beekeeping. And with Ross's permission, I was able to record the session and can bring it to you now. We shot a video that night too, but it was a calamity of errors and it seems that we'll have to settle for the audio only. As an introduction to Ross Conrad, he is a well-known individual in beekeeping circles and is especially known for his well-received book, Natural Beekeeping, Organic Approaches to Modern Apiculture. I would encourage you to visit Ross's website, dancingbeegardens.com, all one word. At his website, you can follow Ross, purchase some of his products, and of course you can pick up his books there, or on Amazon and other book resellers. On this night, Ross spoke of beekeeping in terms of common-sense practices, for one to use to manage their bees in a natural way and what that means. Sustainability was in the key of the discussion. It's a mix of insights, experiences, and advice from a beekeeper who has a wealth of experience. Before I step aside and bring the presentation, I wanted to acknowledge and thank the Northeast New Jersey Beekeepers Branch for taking the time to bring Ross in and providing the invitation. Please enjoy this presentation of Ross Conrad. Hi. I want to thank everybody for coming out on a rainy Friday night. So uh, um, we're going to get into Ross as quickly as we can. And um, as I think everyone knows, Ross Conrad is speaking tonight. And I'm really excited because back when I started the bees, actually the first class I ever took was from Ross. So to me it's really a pleasure because he really shaped how I view beekeeping and, and what I've done all along. And now I'm going to get off the stage and uh, turn, off to, turn it over to Ross Conrad. Thank you, thank you. And uh, I really want to thank the program committee for inviting me to be down here and, and spend some time with you folks. Um, appreciate it. It's great to be here. Especially because the, the leaves are still on the trees here. <laughs> it's great. Um, so uh, I was asked to speak about colony collapse disorder and organic solutions, um, which is kind of interesting because when I think back, you know, 25 years ago, never would have expected I'd be standing here, you know, presenting to, to beekeeper. I mean, who, who's been keeping bees for, you know, more than 10 years? Okay. And, and uh, anyone here has just got bees this year for the first time? Okay. Anybody here doesn't have bees but hope to get them? All right. Good. Well, um, basically, it's interesting for me because, you know, I didn't study beekeeping or anything. Um, I didn't know much about bees at all. Uh, I actually had a, kind of a spiritual experience with a honeybee. 
And uh, because of that experience, uh, it was about six, seven months later, I got offered a full-time job working with a local beekeeper in Vermont, in Middlebury, where I live. And that's why I accepted the job, you know, because most people don't jump at a career opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of stinging insects that could potentially kill you. Um, but uh, it, was, it just turned out to be a whole new education for me, uh, working with Bill and Charlie Mraz of Champlain Valley Apiaries. Um, you know, between them, they had, you know, Charlie Mraz was a world-renowned beekeeper, and um, his son Bill, between them, they had 100, over 100 years of beekeeping experience. So that's where I learned from, kind of the commercial end of it. And when I was working with them, it was right when the time when the Varroa mites were coming through and killing bees left and right. And, you know, when you work for someone and you want to keep your job, you do what they ask you to do. So, you know, I'd use the chemical scripts in the hives but when I was at work, but I didn't like doing it. And with my own bees that I was keeping, I refused to do it. And I lost a lot of bees. They died. Um, you know, especially back then, there wasn't a lot of information. Um, didn't have the internet, you know, this is the early 1990s, the internet was still kind of in infancy, couldn't just Google stuff um, as easy as you can today. So it wasn't easy to really figure things out. And through a lot of trial and error, it took a while, and I finally um, started to get to the point where I could keep my bees alive most of the time uh, without using chemical treatments in the bees. And uh, I've never done it, and I still don't. And uh, in the last uh, 10, 11 years, I've, I've yet to lose more than 20% over the winter. Um, of course, I only have 50, 60 hives or so, but still, um, you know, that's, I'd like it to be better. I mean, some, some winters I get through with no losses, or just one or two hives, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's seven, eight, nine, start to get up there. Um, but that's when I started writing, I wrote the book, Natural Beekeeping, because it's the first book on organic beekeeping to be published in the United States, as far as I know, and uh, basically I just thought, you know, if I could do it, obviously other people could do it, and I just want to get the information out there. My, my approach is not to tell you how to keep bees, there's more than one way to do it, and to do it well. So I try to lay out all the different options, and then you can pick and choose in your situation what's going to work best for you, because we're all keeping bees for different reasons. We have different amounts of time, money, skill to put into it. We have different kinds of bees. We're in different geographic locations with different climates. All those things are going to affect how you keep your bees. So there's no one way that's going to work for everyone. You've got to figure out. You know, it's a real interactive kind of thing, this beekeeping. It's not this cookie cutter, this, you can just do this. You know, you, you really got to think. You got to be involved. You got to, you know, really do it. It's not uh, that's, you know, kind of a spectator type thing. You got to really be involved in it. Um, so when the book was coming out, it was right at the time when CCD was starting to make itself well known. And I had winter of 2006, 2007, and um, for those of you who aren't aware of CCD. The symptoms, basically, are you have a hive that's real healthy, populous, and with a short period of time, two, three weeks or so, crashes, and the, the population numbers decline dramatically, and the bees are not found in the hive, dead or around the hive, like normal things that would kill bees. They're just, they're not there. Um, if there are any bees left, it's just the queen and a handful of bees. 
and those bees are very sick. They've got all kinds of viruses, fungal infections, their immune systems are compromised, very, very much so. And so they're, they're not long to live. Um, an interesting thing is there's also a delay, typically, of a week or two before the usual scavengers will move in and start robbing the honey out. Now the bees in the area, yellow jackets, what have you, they, they just stay away initially. Like they know something is wrong. Now, you know, CCD has been in the news and stuff, and it's definitely jumped the number of winter losses in this country pretty dramatically, but bees are still dying from other things too, okay? Um, one of the problems, especially with the beginners, you know, they go up in the spring, they look in the hive, there's hardly any bees, the hive's dead, they think, oh, CCD, no, okay? Well, probably is something else that actually killed your bees rather than CCD. The one thing that I'm aware of that is really the definitive way of diagnosing CCD is if you look in the hive, and, this, and you have to catch it early enough when there's still a few bees, some bees left, and the amount of brood area is much larger than the number of bees that can cover the brood, keep it warm, and maintain it and care for it. That is the definitive kind of, a, then you know it's CCD and not something else. And, and there's no dead bees around. All those bees are gone, okay? And they're not just dead out front. That means in the you know, relatively recent past, there were enough bees to maintain a large brood nest, and they've disappeared somewhere. And so the brood's still there, but the bees aren't, okay? CCD, as I said, uh, the one thing that seems to be the only thing, really, that's consistent in colony collapse disorder is that the bees are stressed. Their immune systems are compromised. They're sick. They got all kinds of viruses and nasty stuff, and they're dying, okay? So, you know, I don't think this is really rocket science, <laughs> okay? I mean, the way I look, I approach it is, as beekeepers, the more we can reduce the amount of stress on the hive, the easier it'll be for the bees to deal with all the stresses they have to deal with and, and be healthy. You know, like in here, we've got this meeting. One of us might have the flu, okay? And we'll be here, we'll meet, we'll go home. Some of us might catch the flu from that person. A lot of us won't. Why? Well, you know, if you're eating well and getting good night's sleep and fresh air or exercise, you've got a good healthy state of mind, your immune system is going to be strong. But if you're burning the candle at both ends, you know, not eating well, all that other stuff, then your immune system gets compromised. You're more likely to pick up something and, and get sick. Because normally, you know, nature is incredible and it makes people and bees and organisms so they naturally can fight off all the stuff that's around us that we can't even see all the time. You know, it's only when our immune system gets compromised that that stuff can move in. And that's what I think is happening with the bees. So what is stressing the bees that's causing this? Well, <laughs> oh my God, it's like the list is crazy. It's so long. And I kind of break it down into the things we can like control and have a strong influence on, and then all the stuff we can't control and have a strong influence on. Okay? And, and so things we can control, obviously a good diet. That's one thing we can control. If you can't place the bees in a spot where they have forage available pretty much all season, except for the winter, and it's good diverse forage, because bees are like us, they need a diverse diet to be healthy, and then you gotta feed them, 
Okay? Now, from my way of thinking, though, what's real bee food? Nectar that they turn into honey and pollen that they turn into bee bread through fermentation, right? That's real bee food. That's what makes the healthiest bees. When we feed our bees, we don't always give them nectar, honey, or pollen that's bee bread, right? We give them substitutes. Well, I liken it to, you know, kind of eating in a, a fast food restaurant, you know? You can go and eat a meal that tastes great, and you live long enough to make it to the door, live another day, but we've seen that if you eat that day in and day out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, in less than a month, it's stressing your immune system. You're getting sick. You're gonna die. If anyone saw Super Size Me, the documentary, you know, that guy couldn't even make it a month eating at, at one fast food place. So, um, now that's how I look at it with the bees. You know, you can feed them something as a substitute, and, and that helps relieve the immediate stress of starvation, but I don't particularly want to be feeding my bees that all the time, because it's like eating in that fast food restaurant all the time. And so, there's another thing that I do, and I've started doing, that uh, basically comes off of uh, Rudolf Steiner, the father of biodynamics. Um, he talked about putting natural sea salt in with the sugar syrup. Because if you think about sugar, it's just the, 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 the carbohydrate, pure carbohydrate. There's no vitamins, there's no minerals, no enzymes. All the stuff that's in honey is not in that sugar water. It's just pure carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So, what Rudolf Steiner talked about was a way of fortifying it. Just like with white bread, you know, they mill, they take all the good stuff out of the wheat, and then they learn, because people would get sick, they have to fortify it. They put in synthetic vitamins back in so that, you know, there's something there that, to feed people and give you some nourishment. Same thing, I feel, with the bees. Um, so what I like to do is I take a healthy pinch of natural sea salt, the stuff that's got the minerals from the ocean in it. It's not just salt, right, calcium chloride, it's just, or sodium chloride, excuse me. It, it's got, it's usually different color, like pink or gray, because it's got all those minerals from the ocean that are also the same minerals that are in our blood, just different ratio. But those minerals are in there, and you dissolve it in, you know, a healthy pinch. I usually make my, like, one gallon buckets <coughs> of sugar syrup, and I, so I take a three-finger pinch of sea salt, throw it in there. I also add, uh, when I can, I don't always have the opportunity, but, and uh, Real Steiner talked about replacing some of the water with chamomile tea, or thyme tea, mm -hmm. made from tea, you know, thyme or chamomile, just like you drink, you know, the leaves have been filtered out. Again, that's a way of adding some enzymes back in, just to fortify it a bit, a bit. The other thing I do is I only use cane sugar when I'm feeding my bees, because about 90% of all the non-cane sugar in this country is from sugar beets, and pretty much, I mean, 90, all the rest of it is from sugar beets, and 90% of that is genetically modified. And we've seen that genetic modified material can uh, transfer into the bacteria in the digestive system of the bees, and we don't understand all of what it does, but there is some reason to suspect it's, it's not the healthiest thing for bees. So I try to avoid that. Again, it's just a matter of looking at all the things that might stress them and trying to avoid them. Just like I do with myself, just to try to keep healthy, you know, it's kind of basic, basics. Nothing, nothing, you know, rocket science about it. So, um, 
that's kind of the feeding thing. The other thing is um, going into winter, I like to make sure they got plenty of food and, and the top super is full of honey. At least a shallow, medium is even better or even a full deep would be great, especially with the winters getting funny the way they are. Um, and that way they're less likely to starve because you know they move up in the winter so you want the food above them. Whenever you look at a hive, right, you look at the frame, where's the honey? It's on the sides and it's above. So you want to organize the hive the same way. Get them through the winter so they don't starve. And I don't like to leave any empty spaces, no half filled out frames of foundation. And it should be all full, capped, at least you know, 85, 90% filled and capped. Um, so feed, you know, nutrition is one big stressor that we can definitely do something about. Another thing is varroa mites, pests. Mites are the biggest stressor probably that the bees have to deal with. And you don't have to use the chemicals. Um, I'm here to tell you, the reality is, you know, I heard a great quote just today, um, uh, and a Saudi prince or somebody out there in Saudi Arabia once apparently said that, you know, the Stone, stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones, right? It ended because people developed more advanced tools and started using those instead of rocks, okay? Well, it's the same kind of thing here. You know, I don't, you know, we don't need to be using these toxic chemicals in our hives anymore because we have other tools that work as well, if not better, and don't add the additional stress of those toxic chemicals. Because when you use those toxic chemicals, fluvalinate in the apistan, or the kumafos in the checkmite plus, or the mitocure, uh, you know, when people are using the, um, uh, the name of it. it's not even proved, so I shouldn't even talk about it. But there's all kinds of chemicals people can put in the hive. And those chemicals are being shown to have sublethal effects on the bees, right? It, it shortens the uh, lifespan of the workers. The drones don't have as much sperm. Queens don't lay as many eggs. All these things that, you know, it doesn't kill them outright, but there's this sublethal, stressful effect. If you can avoid that, but still control the mites, to me, that's, you know, why not? Luckily... There's all kinds of options out there, commercially available. Um, essential oils is one I've used a lot. Uh, thymol being the active ingredient in both Apolife Var and the Apigard work very well. Temperature sensitive, so you have to use it. You know, roughly average temperature. I think somewhere around 55 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but that can work very well. Also. The uh, formic acid, not toxic in any way, but very corrosive, so you gotta be careful. Wear gloves, don't breathe the fumes. But you know, the formic acid exists in the hive naturally, it's in the honey, the bees produce it, and it dissipates quite rapidly. So actually those, the, the uh, Mitoway quick strips are approved for use at any time. You can use them when honey supers are on. When most treatments you can't use when honey supers are on because you can contaminate your honey. But with the, the quick strip, you can use it at any time. And according to the researchers, of course, these are the guys that were trying to promote this stuff, they say that it kills mites in the sealed brood as well. There's no other treatment I'm aware of that even is set, claimed to do that. So that's encouraging. But again, the formic acid is temperature sensitive, kind of like the thymol, the essential oils. So you have to have the right temperature range. 
Um, you know, pe sugar dusting is some another thing people do. Actually, any any kind of uh, inert powder, you sprinkle it all over the bees, covers them. Basically, it interferes with the ability of the mite to grip with their little feet. These little particles, about five microns, gets in there. They can't grab on. They fall off the bees in higher numbers. And as long as you have a screen bottom board on the bottom of your hive, they will be removed. Um, you know, when they were starting to do the research on these toxic chemical strips, they were scratching their heads saying, you know, how are we going to tell if it's working? Because it's pretty tricky business trying to kill, basically, an insect that's living on an insect with chemicals. So they had this idea of putting a screen bottom on the bottom of each hive. When they put the chemicals in, they, you know, the, the, the mites would die if it worked. They'd fall off the bees, fall to the bottom of the hive, fall through the screen. They could collect them and count them and figure out the efficacy of each treatment. And what they found, because they had to have control hives where they treated it the same in every way, but they didn't put the chemicals in, they found that just naturally over the course of the year, you know, 10, 20, 25% of the mites will just naturally lose their grip and fall off the bees. So if you have a screen on the bottom of your hive and the, underneath the screen, the, that floor is at least an inch and a half to two inches away from the screen, the mites can't sense where the bees are and make their way back up into the hive very easily at all. You're, in effect, to me, it's like, it, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's the easiest, most la least labor-intensive, least la uh, expensive way of removing a small percentage of mites from your hive day in, day out, all year round, without worrying about contaminating your honey or anything like that. Um, and if you use powdered sugar dusting, then you increase the number of mites falling. Because, as I was mentioning, there's the particles from the confectioner's sugar will interfere with the mites' ability to grip. Plus, the powder gets all over the bees. Bees don't like to be covered in powdered sugar. They start grooming themselves. They're more likely to knock the mites off. They're on them. And as long as you've got that screen on the bottom, you can remove very high numbers of mites. Um, it uh, has to be done several times, four or five times in a row, maybe spaced out four or five days each time to be really effective. Because when you do the powdered sugar dusting, it's only going to affect the mites that are on the bees at the time you do the treatment, not the mites reproducing in the cells or hitching a ride on foragers and stuff. So you've got to be you have to do it a number of times. And I know some people have even played around with that, and I tried it, it seemed to work okay, it didn't hurt anything, is you add some uh, garlic powder to the <coughs> confectioner's sugar. Because garlic has very powerful antibacterial, antimicrobial properties, and although there's no science that I'm aware of that supports this, the thought is it may help some of the bees, the bees deal with some of those hive diseases that could, you know, viruses and funguses and things that could grow in a hive. Um, I tried it, didn't seem to hurt anything, didn't affect the flavor of the honey, and from what I hear, if you have Italian bees, they love garlic. <laughs> Go for the garlic, crazy. So, that's a joke. Right. Um, so, oh, Hop Guard is a new, another new product that's come out. Hops, the same stuff they brew beer with. It's an herbal product and very safe. It's just really goopy. They have strips. Which anybody here keeping top bar hives? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, Hop Guard is one of the few treatments that will work easily in a top bar hive that you can buy commercially because it's a strip you hang between the hot uh, frames, and um, it's just goopy. So you got to wear gloves. You don't really want to get all messy with it. Um, but uh, that's another one that's the only other one besides the formic acid that you can use at the same time honey supers are on because it's totally safe, non-toxic. It's hops, it's nerve, um, which is great. Um, 
So those are all options, especially for your beginners. You've got to do something for the mites to relieve that stress, okay? Once you start getting some experience, you may want to consider taking it to the next level. Perhaps some, anybody here um, know of anyone selling treatment-free bees? Yeah, a couple? Okay. Those treatment-free bees, people buy them, and especially the beginner folks, they get them and they're like, great, I got bees, haven't been treated, they're survivors, I don't need to treat for mites, they're going to do great. And within a year or two, the bees are dead from the mites, typically. It's not that those guys selling the treatment-free bees are lying to you. They're not putting stuff in the hive to treat, like the powdered sugar or the thymol or formic acid or any of that. But it's not that they're not doing anything. Usually they're selling nukes. Okay? When they make a nuke up, they split the hive to make their nukes. So they're interrupting the brood cycle. We know the mites brood cycle is intimately tied to the bees' brood cycle. So when you break up that brood cycle by making a split, and ideally you let them raise their own queen, because then it's a longer break in the brood cycle before new bees are born, or you can give them a queen, it's a shorter break in the brood cycle, but still breaks it up, you slow down the population growth of the mites. Because the population growth, every brood cycle, basically the mites will just about double. They've figured out that when a female mite goes into a cell, on average, in European honeybees, they will raise about two additional mites. So every brood cycle, you've got basically the number of mites doubling. You might start out the season about 100 or 200 mites in the hive. Not a big deal when you've got you know, 20,000 bees. But then every 21 to 24 days, it's doubling. So it goes from 200 to 400 to 800, just like you know, the, uh, the riddle, would you rather have a million bucks or a penny that gets doubled every day? So you get two cents, four cents, eight cents for the next, you know, 24 days. Well, being the smart, seasoned citizen that you are, you would take the penny that gets doubled every day because you know that on those last couple days, you end up with way more than a million dollars from that exponential growth. And that's kind of what happens with mites in the population, in the hive. They just build up all season, and by this time of the year, the population is going through the roof right when the bees are condensing their, their, their you know, cluster, and they're, they're not raising as many bees, they're getting ready for winter, and it's going to be really hard on them. So you've got to do something. So breaking the brood cycle is something that can help suppress the mite population. Another thing that happens when people make nukes and sell them, those treatment-free bees, they're removing frames and replacing them. We know from all the research that's being done, frames of comb build up toxic chemical contaminants. They build up pathogen, virus, uh, various fungal and uh, disease organisms. They build up on the combs and in the wax. So you want to replace those old combs on a regular basis. In nature, that normally happens thanks to the wax moths, right? The hive gets a little weak, it contracts. Those combs on the outside, the wax moths get in, eat them up, destroy them. So they have to replace them when they start. The hive builds back up the next season, and they'll build new combs. It's a constant replacing. So we have to kind of start doing that as well. The, the current recommendation is no combs should be more than three to five years old in your hive, especially if you're using chemicals. I think if you're just keeping in the... Uh, honey supers and you're not using toxic stuff in the hive, you could probably go seven years. 
But the idea is to, to replace the combs pretty regularly. You don't want them to get old, dark combs that are so black you can't even see through them when you hold them up to the sun, like in the old days, right? You're just asking for trouble, especially these days. Um, so you want to replace the combs regularly, and that's what the guys selling nukes do. And the other thing they do is they start with good bees, right? There are three strains of bees that are proven to have resistance to diseases in mites. They're Russian bees, the varroa-sensitive hygiene bees, VSH bees, and the hygienic bees. Um, so whenever I'm buying bees, I never consider buying anything that isn't one of those strains or a mix of those genetics. You're just starting out, you know, with, with more problems, and, and it's going to make it harder for you to keep them alive. Um, so, so right there, they're doing three things to help suppress mites. They've got good genetics, they're breaking the brood cycle, they're replacing their old combs, selling the old combs to you, right? If you buy those nukes of treatment-free bees, and if you don't do the same management, then yeah, those bees will probably die if you don't treat them, okay? It turns out that there's actually five things. There's two more things you can do. One is put a screen bottom board on your hive to remove some mites, and the other thing is to either trap the mites or cull the drone brood, because the, the varroa prefer to raise their young in the drone brood, the drone comb. And so when the comb is capped, you remove it, destroy the comb, you're going to destroy a high percentage of the mites that are reproducing in the hive at that time. And so anyone I know that's not treating their bees with anything for mites, but their bees are surviving most of the time, they're doing a combination of those five things. Good genetics, screen bottom board, um, breaking the brood cycle by making splits or nukes, replacing the combs on a regular basis, or trapping, culling the drone, trapping the mites or culling the drone brood. And none of those things on their own is enough typically to keep the bees alive, but you know, 10% here, 15% control there, 5% here, it adds up and it can be enough to do that. Um, so that's what I'm moving to, just because I'm thinking, you know, we gotta do everything differently, I think, in our culture these days. We're seeing, you know, the way things are going. And um, so I'm thinking more sustainable, right? And a truly sustainable farm or whatever doesn't bring anything off the farm or in the apiary. You don't bring in anything from outside. So. I don't want to be relying on someone to produce a product that they're going to package and ship to me so I can keep my bees alive. Because if for some reason they can't get it to me, then what do I do, right? But if I can keep my bees alive on my own, I just feel I'm better off. So that's what I, uh, three years ago, uh, I treated half my bees. I didn't treat the other half. Started doing more of these other, I do four of the five things actually. Um, then last year, I only treated 20% of the bees, and then, you know, of course it was a mild winter, but had really, they did fine. Um, and then this year I haven't treated any of them, and I don't plan to treat them anymore. But I am making splits regularly. All my hives have screen bottom boards. I always get make sure I've got good stock. I'm replacing all the old combs. Um, the only thing, because I, I don't have the time, is trapping or culling the drone brood. But you know, the more of those five things you can work into your management, the more likely they'll stay alive. But again, if you're just starting out, you know, just buy one of the products, it's quick and easy, you put it in, and you got some control, as long as you follow the directions properly, and, you know. So, yeah. I was just gonna ask you about how many nukes do you normally overwinter? And uh, do you do that as a method to, to, you know, then replace some of your stock so you don't have to 
get your bees from someplace else. So the question is, how many nukes do I overwinter, and if I do it to replace my stock? Yeah. Um, I, I, when I make my nukes, I don't overwinter them as nukes, oh. because when you do that, you got to feed them. Mm-hmm. And when I feed them, I want to feed my bees honey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trying to feed bees, you know, basically, I make my nukes as early as possible I can, as I can in, in the spring, mm-hmm. usually May or June at the latest. Okay. And, and then I let them build up, and uh, going into winter, if that hive body of bees has just managed to fill a hive body and nothing else, I'll take a super full of honey from another hive, put it on top of that nuke, they're fed for the winter, because mm-hmm. then they got a full box of honey on top where I want all the honey. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I kind of do mine. Mm-hmm. And um, so does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that's mites. Then there's all these other diseases that we also have a control over in terms of how much stress is going to be on the bees. Uh, Nosema's been a big one. And actually, it turns out there are essential oils that help keep bees alive in the face of Nosema. You don't, you know, the standard treatment is to use the fumigillum B, right? It's an antibiotic. The problem with antibiotics is similar to the problem with pesticides. They're indiscriminate. Okay? Antibiotic, anybody here ever take antibiotics when they have the flu or something? Anybody? Yeah? Ever make you, does it make you feel really great? No, no. It makes you feel lousy, man. It stresses you. Why? Because it's not only killing the bad bacteria that's making you sick, it's killing all the good bacteria in your system, too, that you need to be healthy. It's the same thing in the beehive. There's all this beneficial bacteria in the bee's digestive system that they use to, to, to uh, ferment the pollen. When you put on that antibiotic, it's going to affect those beneficial bacteria, not in a good way. So, luckily... It turns out there are there's a, two products out there that are made from lemongrass and spearmint essential oils. These essential oils are emulsified so that you mix them with water. Okay, and otherwise normally they don't mix with water. So you can mix it with sugar syrup. Um, one is called ProHealth from Man Lake Beekeeping Supply in Minnesota. The other one's called Honey Bee Healthy. And it turns out that if you take, they're normally sold as feeding stimulants. You take one teaspoon of this essential oil mixture, put in a quart of sugar syrup, or BT, that I like to make with the sea salt, feed it to the bees, and it it, it makes it smell like something, you know, because normally plain white sugar doesn't have any scent. There's nothing in it but carbohydrates, so it doesn't have a lot of smell, but you put this in it, it smells very flowery, the bees zone right in on it because they can smell it and they'll take it down quicker. Turns out, I was talking to some beekeepers, mostly the large beekeepers, right, that are migratory guys. They're having their major problems with colony collapse. Well, one beekeeper from Michigan, about half his hives had died. He had an 800 hive outfit. He was down to about 350 hives. And the hives that he had left were crashing too. They all had the symptoms of colony collapse. Out of desperation, he took four times the regular feeding strength of that honeybee healthy, added it to the sugar syrup, so he took four teaspoons per quart, and tried to feed it to the bees, but it was too strong. The bees wouldn't touch it. So out of desperation, he just took a cup of it and poured it into the hives, all over the bees, all over the frames, made a mess of things, forced the bees to have to clean it up. They started licking it up to clean it up, and that forced them to take it in. His hives, they got healthy. They turned right around. And it turns out when the researchers have looked at this, some research has shown 
uh, when testing it specifically for nosema, that the bees treated with Fumadil B had the same life expectancy as the tree, bees treated with what they call now as a drench of the essential oils, because you're not usually feeding them, you're actually drenching You either spray it on them or you pour it on them, you force them to take it in because you get it all over the place. Um, what's really interesting is when the researchers looked inside the bees' guts at the amount of spores, the nosema spores in their digestive system, uh, the bees treated with nosema had the same number of spores as the control colonies that were untreated. So we don't totally understand how these essential oils are working, but they seem to work. Not only for nosema, but for the symptoms of colony collapse disorder. Um, there is some research that I'm still waiting for it to come out, but the observations are that when it, with dealing with viruses, these, this essential oil drench seems to take out these viruses. And um, still waiting to come. This guy, David Wick, out in Montana, has been looking at this, and he's still working with his data to try to come up with what it means. But um, all indications are that um, these essential oils seem to be working. They're not approved for this use, so you can't, you know, find it like that. But this is what beekeepers are doing, especially the big migratory guys, because those guys, their bees are the most stressed of all the, all the hives, and that's why they're getting the most colony collapse problems. Um, those of you, you know, may not be familiar with migratory beekeeping, the best example I can share with you is the almond crop in California. The almonds, there is an area in California, it's about six, 700,000 acres, maybe 750,000 acres now, because the price of almonds has gone up, so they're planting more. It's perfect for growing almonds. You know, the weather is right, the soil is right. They don't have enough water, but they're able to bring that in from the Colorado River and fix that. And so, as a result, this one area of California grows roughly 80% of the world's almonds. Okay? It's huge. And this is like the desert. So, <laughs> all right, there's nothing really there except these almond trees. It's a big monoculture, basically. And as a result, the there's no natural pollinators there that can do the job of pollinating those almond trees because the, the almond growers like to have really ideally two hives per acre to get a good almond set. And so what happens is they have to bring in bees, two hives per acre, do the math, right? You got about 700,000 acres, it's about 1.4 million hives are needed to pollinate the almonds. It's in this one time of year, usually it's you know February into March, it's the largest pollinating migratory beekeeping event in the world. Quite something. Um, but, you know, there's not that many bees in California. <laughs> so they have to bring them in, usually from all the other states and sometimes from other countries. Um, and it's really stressful on the bees to be shipped so far. Um, basically, it's unfortunate, but, you know, it's, it's our society, right? Capitalist system. We don't get what's necessarily best for our society, we get what people can make money doing. And to make money moving bees, you got to do it in bulk. So we typically keep four to eight hives, sometimes six, depending on how you're managing them per pallet, keep them on pallets, because then you can move them quickly with forklifts. And we load them onto big tractor trailer trucks, you can get four to six hundred hives on a truck, depending on how you stack them. And of course when you're driving down the road, it's not good PR to leave a trail of angry bees is in every town you go through. So we take a big net, throw it over the back of the truck to keep all the bees contained, 
Um, but you know, the bees are getting jostled around, so they come out of their hives, they get into the net, they get buffeted by the wind, the rain, the sun beats down on them during the day, the hives start getting hot, then at night it cools off, so there's these temperature swings. Um, you know, with yeah, 400 hives on a truck, the chance of the bee finding its way back into its hive is pretty, you know, slim to none. Uh, so it, it's so stressful, in fact, on hives that on average, about 10% of the colonies that are moved, you know, a thousand miles or more, you know, going to California, die. And, and the beekeepers just factor this in, you know, it's part of the business thing, you know, their, their business model. They factor it in. So they bring the hives into California and they, they drive all the trucks into the big holding yards, big huge fields where they can just unload all the trucks and go through and weed out all the dead ones and whatnot. And you know, they're shoveling the dead bees off the back of the truck. And, and then of course you've got sometimes tens of thousands of bees in one big field in California, middle, end of winter, there's nothing for them to eat. You've got to feed them. We don't feed them what they're meant to eat. We give them substitutes, which you know, nutritionally gives them some more stress. But finally, they get the bees all straightened out, they move them into the almond orchards, and they get to eat real nectar, real pollen from real blossoms, real bee food. But it's severely limited to just almonds, nothing else. There's nothing growing there and blooming at that time of the year, in fact, most of the year, but almonds, that's it. It'd be like if you could eat something real healthy like kale, that's all you could eat for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, seven days a week, for three, four, five weeks. It would probably start affecting your health, right? Well, that's what we're doing to the bees. You know, it's amazing that they've lasted this long in, in reality. And, and what's the other sad part is, is that beekeepers don't want to be treating their bees this way. They don't want to do this to their bees. They have no choice, right? This is the industrialized agricultural system that we all kind of collectively have developed because we all support it, right? This is what we use to produce most of our food. And since the native pollinators have been killed off by the uh, pesticides or killed off by the monoculture that destroys the other habitat and the other forage, the natural pollinators aren't there. We have to bring the bees in. I mean, think about it. If beekeepers said, you know, I'm not going to stress my bees like this. I don't care how much they're going to pay me. I'm not going to do it. You know, you can see the headlines in the paper, right? Beekeepers starve nation, right? And, you know, think about the bad PR, man. <laughs> oh, God. Everybody would hate us. You know, forget about it. We have to do that. So it's, it's just a crazy system we've developed. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. And then, of course, is the chemicals, as I mentioned. Um, that's another huge stress factor that you know we have some control of because you don't, as I mentioned, you don't have to put them into the hive. There's all kinds of alternatives, but you know there's a lot of stuff out there that the agricultural system is using. The neonicotinoids are a prime suspect, but there's a lot of other things. That even things that aren't always that toxic become more toxic when they mix with other chemicals. Because the reality is, unfortunately, there's no realistic, meaningful chemical regulatory regulation in this country or anywhere in the world for that matter. Um, here in the United States, the EPA wasn't even founded and established until around 1970. So, and all the chemicals in use to before then were just grandfathered in. And then of course the EPA, right, you know, they're, they're only got so much money and staff. So they typically rely on the chemical companies that produce the chemicals to do the studies and provide them with the data 
that they use to evaluate these chemicals, talk about your you know, conflict of interest, not to mention that a lot of the people in the EPA used to work for the chemical companies, and when they get done in the EPA, because a new administration comes in, they go back to work for the chemical companies. So again, you know, how tough are you going to be on your potential future employer? Another conflict of interest. And then even when they do do research, if it is even you know, scientifically valid, they only look at a, one chemical in isolation. And in reality, there's you know, tens of thousands of chemicals that we use in agriculture that are out there, and they mix. And when we've seen, there's actually research that has shown them two chemicals combined can be a thousand times more toxic than either one on its own. But we don't look at all the possible chemical combinations that could happen and how toxic it could be to bees or to humans. And we've learned that actually these chemicals can affect organisms at different stages of their growth, but not at other stages. We already know that with women, at a certain trimester, a certain drug or chemical can affect the, the fetus, but not in other trimesters. Same thing with other insects. These things can happen at certain stages where they're more vulnerable, but not at others. But we don't test for all of this. We don't look at any of it. And the reality is, if we, even if we wanted to, there would be <laughs> the millions and millions of tests that would have to be done. It's basically impossible. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough staff. I mean, the whole you know, human population would have to be involved in these studies, and it would still take years and years. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So the reality is, it just doesn't happen. There is no meaningful chemical regulation. Um, so the reality is, we've got to avoid these chemicals, because we don't really understand what we're doing with them. We know that they're actually toxic to bees a lot of times, but we tend to allow small amounts of harm if somehow we can rationalize a, a net benefit to society. So we want food, so we let the farmers use the chemicals, even though it's going to harm things, because we'll get food and that's on balance. We've been thinking so far that that's a good deal. <laughs> um, but these chemicals are building up. They don't always just go away after they've sprayed in the air after year. They're building up in the soil, in the water. It's getting to be an issue. And part of the thing is, it, it's, it's an issue because of this cumulative effect. Um, that's another interesting idea that I've learned about, is this, this idea that we can do a small amount of harm that normally seems totally insignificant, right? You know, one of us, we can fertilize our lawn on the, on the banks of the Chesapeake Bay. Totally insignificant. It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect anything. But... When you get tens of thousands of people doing it, all in the Chesapeake and up and down the, 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 the tributaries, the, the Mississippi, now we've got huge dead zones in the Chesapeake, and, and certain sea life has is, is declined and pretty much gone because of that. Or even just uh, running an internal combustion engine. right? One person running an internal combustion totally insignificant. It's not going to hurt anything. It just does a tiny little bit of harm. Insignificant. But now we're seeing we have millions or now billions of people running internal combustion engines. It's altered the atmosphere of the planet and increased the carbon dioxide by about 35% from what's normal. So we're seeing this cumulative impact where small amounts of harm can add up and have a huge impact. And part of it is infecting, and not infecting, but affecting the bees. The change in the climate is causing a lot of times the, the plants to bloom at different times than normally they would. 
Um, and what's really hard on the bees is if that early spring, uh, willows, soft maples, those, those plants that bloom early, early in the spring that give the first shot of pollen to help the bees start building up from winter. If those things bloom extra early because the winter's really mild, but then it gets cold again and the bees can't get out and take advantage and collect it, they're going to have nutritional stress from that. Uh, not to mention just, you know, the, the effects on the weather that science is starting to kind of connect the dots and we're starting to see that this change in the climate is affecting the weather and causing, you know, we've always had weird weather, but the weather is becoming weirder more often and the storms are becoming a little more stronger than we would normally expect. And this can be, we believe, tied to the changes that is happening. So, for me, you know, I look at it, and the bees, you know, they teach us this. <laughs> if we just look at and listen to the bees, they would tell us all this. Because if you look at the hive, right, in its entire life, a worker bee is estimated will collect enough nectar to make one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. Okay. So 12 bees working their entire life will collect enough nectar to make enough honey for you to have one teaspoon to enjoy in your coffee or your tea. Now, think about this. A hive going through the winter, at least in the Northeast, typically 60 to 100 pounds. That's just to get through the winter. All during the summer, they're using honey. So they, you know, a couple hundred pounds or more of honey they need every year. But a bee can only gather enough for one-twelfth of a teaspoon. That's totally insignificant. And yet the bees don't fall for this illusion that what they do doesn't matter. The bee does what the bee can do and gathers that twelfth of a teaspoon and counts on all her sisters to do the same. And by working together, that cumulative impact, they make miracles happen. Hundreds of pounds of honey, sometimes excess that we can then harvest. So for me, when I look at it, you know, we often say, well, what can one person do? We've got all these problems. How are we going to deal with it? Just look at this, you know, don't let this idea that what you do is insignificant. I think, in fact, this isn't me saying this. Um, I think it was Mahatma Gandhi was quoted at one time saying that what you do may seem totally insignificant, but it's really important that you do it. So just as the cumulative impacts of our small amounts of harm can cause major, major changes on the planet that are really destructive, the small amounts of cumulative impacts that we each do of the good stuff the healing, the nurturing, the fixing, the cleaning up, that can all start to also accumulate. And we can start to turn some of these issues we're dealing with around. And the bees show us this. And an another great lesson that I, from the bees that I just feel is probably the most, most inspiring is when I look at how the bees go about making their living, taking from the world what they need around, you know, what they need to live, what they gather? They gather the nectar, they gather the pollen, they gather water, and they gather propolis, the resins from the trees. That's all they need to take from the world around them to survive, along with the sun, the heat of the sun, the warmth that they soak up, the air that they breathe. That's it. And in taking what they need, they don't harm anything. They don't hurt anything. Not so much as a leaf on a plant gets injured. 
And yet by taking what they need, they actually give back through the act of pollination. They help the plants to be vibrant and multiply so that there's all kinds of fruits and nuts and seeds and berries and vegetables of all different shapes and sizes for all the insects, all the animals, all of us people. You know, what a great lesson for me to try to work into my life is how to live in such a way that by taking what I need from the world around me, I do it in a way that actually, first of all, does the least amount of harm possible, but actually gives back and makes the world a better place. To me, you know, that is the kind of things we need to be focused on and doing. And that's why I love coming out and speaking with groups of meeting beekeepers. Because I believe, and this is just one small way that you can do this in your life, and you may be doing other things too, but by keeping bees and keeping them healthy and doing it naturally with organic approaches that don't add additional stress and toxins into the environment in the hive, you are helping the bees indirectly. You're making the world a better place through the bees. And that's just one way. And we need to start figuring out lots of other ways and other ways to do it as well. Because there's a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's getting pretty bad out there. The ice is all melting. And the rate of species extinction is just skyrocketing right now. As we sit here, they say the rate of species extinction on the planet right now rivals the time of the dinosaur. And if they, depending on different uh, calculations and who you listen to, anywhere from 25 to 75% of all species could potentially be gone from the planet by the end of this century if we don't start changing what we do now. You know, It's really, really, really important. So I think colony collapse is just kind of a, a symptom of that bigger issue that we're dealing with. Um, and, and oh, well, I, was, I was talking about, I mentioned that thing about the Stone Age. And um, I think that's, when I had heard, heard that quote today, it was in the context of, right now, we are in this fossil fuel age, but we're realizing that, you know, there's all these unintended consequences that are, um, you know, causing a lot of problems, and so we've got to start using smarter tools that we already have. I mean, there's all kinds of renewable energy things that are already here. We don't even have to develop them. All kinds of biofuels, solar, wind, geothermal, um, <coughs> that kind of thing. So it's almost as if, you know, now we're, we're entering, we went from the Stone Age to the technological <coughs> age, or fossil fuel age, now we're going to go into another age, and we've got to start making that transition. And the sooner we make it, the better. We've got to start thinking differently, because the world's a different place now than it was just 20 years ago. Um, I, you know, I never had kids. I mean, I, the population is another issue, and I just chose not to have kids. Um, but I, you know, I feel, for, I can't imagine what people who have kids must be feeling, and their grandkids. You know, they're going to be on the cleanup crew if we don't get it together and start really making the changes that need to be made. And and for the bees, too. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that so many species on the planet are dying out at the same time that the bees are dying out. Because the bees, the bees are survivors. You know, these bees, you know, the, the oldest bee on the planet is found in amber, fossilized, in carbon dating. They say it was about 100 million years old. 
100 million years. Of course, when you look at this picture of this thing, it doesn't look like a bee. It's this crushed insect. But, you know, how do you tell it's a bee? Well, it turns out when you look under a microscope, um, honeybee is the only insect we know of, the stinging insect, that has the barb stinger. It's the only insect that has tiny, tiny hairs on its compound eye. And uh, the bees have, tend to have a certain vein patterns in their wings that are pretty consistent, different species of bees. And that's how they were able to look at this insect that's in this amber and tell it was a bee from 100 million years ago. Okay, now think of that, 100 million years ago. The dinosaurs are considered to have died out about 65 million years ago. So the bees survived a time when there was mass extinction on this planet, the last one that we're aware of, before the one that's currently happening. The bees are survivors. And, you know, I don't believe it's this kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest thing. Again, why did the bees survive? I think they survived because they learned the lesson of cooperation, of working together. They don't try to go it alone. They know, you know, that's not the way. You're much stronger. And then the bees aren't the only ones. I mean, we see flocks of birds, schools of fish, herds, packs, all these different animals learn that by coming together and working cooperatively, your chances of survival increase dramatically. And unfortunately, what is our culture? You know, we've, we've destroyed communities. We've got to rebuild them. We've got to start working together. And what's great about beekeepers is that you know, we all come together. You, know, you look around. There's all different ages. There's all different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different religions, different sexual orientations, most likely. I mean, but yet, we all have this common thing, the bees, that common passion. You know, if we focus on what we have in common, we get a lot more done than if we're focused on our differences. And I think the bees teach us that, too. So there's so much wisdom in the bees. I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed. You know, I'm always learning. The bees have so much to teach. And um, uh, I guess I got a little bit off track, but, you know, part of, you may be wondering why I'm talking about this, because I don't think we can keep the bees alive by just focusing on what's going on in the beehive. We've got to look at what the bigger picture of what's going on outside the beehive as well. Because that just as the bees affect so much in the landscape by what they do, there's a lot in the landscape that affects the bees. And we've got to take care of the whole system if we really want any part of the system to really do well and thrive, is what it comes down to. It's a more holistic kind of approach. That's my belief, anyway. Question in the back. Yeah, um, in the normal evolution of your drawing this year, do you raise your own queens? Do you allow your males to raise their own queens, or do you drop the genetics of the Well, I guess I'm a lazy beekeeper, okay? I don't like to do any work that the bees are going to do for me. And I tend to believe that bees know how to raise other bees or queens better than people do, certainly better than I do. So I let the bees raise their own queens. So your success rate was due to, by chance, having this good genetic <coughs> strain and letting it build upon itself? Basically, yeah. When I make my splits, you know, I'm going to only split the hives that are good and strong in the spring. They can afford to be split and made into a nuke or a split. And then I let them raise their own queen, so that genetics gets carried on. It gets diluted because they naturally mate. Um, but over time, especially if I only bring in good genetics, and hopefully people around me have good genetics, but you never know. 
Um, but over time, that's how local strains get developed <coughs> that are really adapted to certain areas. And so I'm a big believer in local bees, and local as much as possible. And your rate of success on the <laughs> Uh, yeah, typically 70, 80, 90%, depending on how I make them. You know, I always try to time my nuke split or nuke making uh, to time with the, the major honey flow, the first major honey flow, which is dandelions, where I am typically, uh, around the middle of May, beginning of May. Uh, used to be about the third week in May, but now it's more getting to more, more the middle of May. Um, and... Uh, the way I like to make my nukes, I, I always put in unhatched eggs, and I put it a frame with unhatched eggs between two frames with brood of all different ages, so that the bees in there are going to cluster around the brood, and those eggs are going to be in the center of the cluster, because that's what they're going to use to draw out the queen cells. And I want that to be the warmest, well, you know, fed right there in the center of the cluster. And um, yeah, I get pretty good success. I get better success when I split a 10-frame deep in two and make two small five-frame or four-frame nukes um, in that one box. Something about the smaller space, maybe the shared wall, you know, they get more insulation. I don't know what it is, but the, the success rate seems to go up a little bit, um, roughly 10% maybe. Um, so, you know, I usually get, you know, I'd say around 90% success rate when I do two in one box. Um, or it's more like 80% if I just do a single nuke in a single box. Because again, you know, not only am I kind of a lazy beekeeper, I'm a cheapskate beekeeper, and I don't want to spend money on more equipment that I don't need. So I'm going to use the equipment I have. And I got 10 frame boxes, I just use that instead of buying special nuke boxes. But, you know, um, that's not to say don't do it, that's just what works for me. Remember, there's more than one way to keep bees. Right? Yes? Well, you know, again, I don't know what your specific situation is, the kind of bees you have. Russian bees are much more conservative in their honey use, whereas Italian bees will eat a lot more, so they're going to need more honey. You know, so, And I don't know what kind of climate you're in. If you're in the mountains, uh, it may be colder and less forage than if you're in the valley. So it's all going to affect different things. But I can tell you what I do, which is basically, I just, to overwinter, I just focus on three things. I make sure... They're good and healthy, which means I've done something for the mites, and I've done it early enough so that they can raise healthy winter bees to get through the winter. So if you're going to use a treatment, don't wait till now or even in late September. You know, end of August, beginning of September is a good time. Treat them early so that when they start raising the winter bees, those bees can be healthy because sick bees can't raise healthy bees. Just If they've got viruses, they just pass it on to the other bees, and they're all sick, and they're not going to make it through the winter. So you got to make sure your bees are healthy. And that mainly means do something about varroa. Then I make sure they got plenty of food. right? I always leave a full minimum of a shallow. Now I'm moving to like an equivalent of, of a deep, full of honey on top of the brood nest. A minimum of two shallows. That's what I'm doing now because the winters are getting weirder. And you know, there was last winter, it was so mild, I had to get out and feed this spring. I never had to, I had to buy hundreds of pounds of sugar. I hated it. I didn't want my bees to die. So I'd rather feed them what they're meant to eat. So this year I left extra honey. I mean, I didn't get a bigger honey crop, but my bees are going to be healthier. And to me, that's what's more important. Um, so I, I make sure they have a full box, at least on top, 
everything's full inside, and you know, try to lift it, it should feel like lead. If you can't lift it at all, that's good. That's what you want. If you can kind of lift it, there's probably not enough honey in there. At least where I am. I don't know what your situation is down here. You're in the banana belt down here in the south. And then, of course, the last thing is to keep the bees dry. Right? I, I used to tie down my outer covers on the hives, but now the bears, they, they just came out with a report in the last five years, the bear population in Vermont's doubled. And we've been noticing there's been a lot more bear problems and bears showing up in places where historically they never were, and they all of a sudden they're getting into hives. So now, one of my things I do for bears is not only do I have an electric fence, those things can fail, bears can figure out how to get around them, so I also strap all my hives together. Because I've had occasions where bears get in, they push a hive over, and if it doesn't break open where they can just get into it, they will get discouraged sometimes, and they'll leave it alone. And I just come back and stand the hive up, and they're fine. So I keep my hives all strapped, and now that I'm using straps, I just leave the straps on all winter so I don't have to tie down the covers so they don't come off and keep, keep the beads dry. The other thing I do is I'll take insulation, usually one-inch blue board insulation, cut to the size of the inner cover. Put it on the inner cover, put the outer cover on top of that, then I strap it together. It's like giving them a hat for the winter, basically. Because what happens is, during the winter, a lot of moisture gets in the hive through condensation, and through respiration, the bees consuming the honey. And that, re that moisture coming off the cluster, the warm, moist air, can hit the inner cover and freeze. Because the bees, you know, they're so much smarter than we are. They don't try to heat their whole home, the whole hive. They only heat the area they're occupying, that cluster. The rest of the interior of the hive, that temperature of the interior of the hive is not that different from the ambient temperature outside. It gets cold when it's cold out. And so any moisture in that hive can freeze. And if you have moisture hitting the inner cover and building up on that inner cover, you can actually get a layer of ice that builds up on the inner cover during the cold times. And then you get a thaw. And one day it warms up to 45, 50 degrees. It's sunny. That, that ice starts dripping and melting and dripping down on the bees. And then at night, of course, it gets cold again. And then you got wet, cold bees. Not good. The bees can handle being wet when it's warm. And they can handle the cold if they stay dry and they got plenty of honey and bodies to share. And, you know, they get together and snuggle, keep each other warm for the winter, right? That's what they do. But wet and cold is not good. So that's why I put the insulation under. And that's all I do. I, I leave all the openings. I don't seal anything up. I want plenty of ventilation. So uh, the bottom entrance between the bottom board and, and the first high body, I just put half-inch hardware cloth in there to keep the mice out. I leave it open otherwise. I have a screen bottom board open to the ground, not closed up in any way. And I have usually an upper entrance, often a three-quarter inch hole drilled in the side of one of the high bodies, um, just to give them an upper entrance in case the bottom all gets clogged up with ice and snow and dead bees so they can still get out on a warm day and make their cleansing flights. And, and that allows the airflow to vent out the moist air so it's not likely to build up ice on the inner cover and drip down the bees. <coughs> And that's all I do. And, and, and my bees do really well compared to what I hear other people experience. I mean, they can always be better. It's no fun when, you know, like last, no, last year was good. It was such a mild winter. See, that's the other thing. Again, it's stress, right? Winter is the most stressful time for the bees. So I don't think it's a surprise that the past five, six years, we had an average of maybe around 30% winter losses, where last year was about 22% or something uh, for the country. It was such a mild winter. 
if we have a hard winter, I bet you it's going to go back up. I would suspect. I'd put money on it. Um, because I don't think the CCD thing, I'm sorry to say, is, is going to go away too quickly unless we start cleaning things up a little more, as some of these issues that I've just touched on today. Um, yeah. Yeah, one other question. It's a two part. Uh, have you ever wrapped your bonnets? Say tar paper, Can you repeat the, the question? The part about that is um, I read a lot about uh, northern beekeepers actually using a three bee system. Mm hmm. Yeah, the first question was if I ever wrapped the hives. And um, the morasses I work with, they have experimented with that. They have about 1,000 hives. And, and from what they found, that wrapping really didn't help in any way. And sometimes it could hurt by preventing the ventilation if, if you didn't leave open up venting. And the other thing that can happen, especially with the insulation, insulation keeps cold in as well as out. So, you know, you insulate the hive all and wrap it with these blankets, and then it gets it's cold, and this cold seeps in, right? The cluster is warm, but it's cold in there. And then you get a warm day, but the hive never gets to warm up because it's insulated and, and the heat can't get in. So I think you, you can do more harm than good sometimes. But, you know, if you've been doing that and it's been working for you, then keep doing it. What I'm saying is what, if what you're doing isn't working the way as to the level you want it to, then consider thinking differently, that's all. Your other question was uh, the idea that people up in, in northern areas are using 3D system. Well, I think that's just kind of what I was saying. You, you want to leave extra honey on top. So it's very likely they've got you know good, healthy queens that are, have a big brood nest in the two bottom deeps, and that top deep, the way if I was doing it, and basically I sort of am, is, is, is that would be full of honey. Only I tend to use one deep sh sandwich between shallows. Because so, shallows, it's easier to feed more efficiently. You know, very often a hive only needs a shallow full of honey to have enough for winter. And I could give them a full deep, but that's more than they really need. And so that's why I tend to use the shallows. Plus, you know, it is easier on the back, I have to say. And the older I get, the more I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier that um, you would take honey and put it on a different hive, from one hive to another. Yep. I was always told, don't do that. Well, yeah, if you don't know if your hives are healthy and they have disease, not a good idea. So learn diseases and inspect your hives regularly and make sure that they're good and healthy and it's not a problem. As long so as your hive take it from a healthy one and put it on one that you're trying to build up is okay? For going into winter, I do it all the time. Yeah, that's how I feed my bees. That's how my preferred way to feed the bees. The only time I usually give them sugar syrup is if I don't have honey to give them from another hive. <laughs> yeah, because that's what they're meant to eat, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that, that's what I do. Um, but again, there's more than one way to do it. So you know, everyone's got their own opinion, right? <laughs> so it keeps beekeeping interesting. In the back. Do you think if we were to encourage people to buy organic, we could change things away from the monoculture farm? That's, well, um, these are monoculture organic too, unfortunately, especially now that big corporations are involved. But the big thing with organic is you're getting away from the toxic chemicals as much, and, and the, the, the synthetic fertilizers and herbicides and, you know, fungicides, that kind of thing. Um, so I definitely think the future is going to be organic. In fact, there's all kinds of studies that have come out recently, the UN and whatnot, that have shown that the big industrial scale is just never going to feed the planet. 
If you just look at, I mean, think about it. It there's done some research that has shown the amount of energy it goes into producing one calorie of food energy is like 20 calories. If bees had to burn up 20 calories for every calorie of food energy, they'd all starve to death. <laughs> they couldn't do it. It's ridiculous. So what we're doing is just so inefficient. It's not smart. We're smarter than this. We can do so much better. It's unbelievable. There's so much room for improvement. It's going to be hard not to do better, <laughs> in my view. And so, yeah, organic is just one part of it, you know. And one, you know, and what we eat, how we, the kind of energy you use, uh, transportation, and how we get around. We got to rethink of how, you know, what we're doing, where we're living, our livelihoods, the kind of work we're doing, we're living in relation to the work we're doing. Um, you know, I think we're all going to have to get more involved in growing our own food. You know, relying on, on especially because you know we've relied on oil to get to where we are now. But cheap oil is over; it's never going to be cheap again. It's only going to keep getting worse. Same thing with gas. Gas is cheap right now, but 10, 20 years from now, it's going to be just the same thing with oil, gas as we're seeing with oil. Price is going to start climbing. It's going to be less and less produced, and, or at least it's going to it's it's leveled out. It's not less produced. They're 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 going out now because the price is so high. They can go after the kind of oil that used to be so expensive they would never touch it. But now at least they can make some money doing it. But the problem is, of course, is the climate change thing. We've got to move away from fossil fuels. That's, you know, and that's why I think this whole industrial monoculture agricultural system is doomed because right now it's relying on fossil fuels. If we can't keep moving those bees around when needed, and you know, eventually you know, the price of food is going to go way up. It's already, some people at the UN came out with a report just recently saying, uh, they're warning of food food shortages coming up because of the changing climate. Um, countries are not being able to produce as much as they used to. And this year here in the United States, out in droughts out in the Midwest, the wheat crop is way down, corn is way down. Where things are gonna are changing. So the more localized, we got to get back to community oriented. I, I believe just working together with our neighbors. Start growing more, even if it's just a backyard. Support your local farms. CSAs is a big thing, and then that's coming. And even in the cities, there's a lot of urban farms that are springing up on rooftops, and beekeeping's a part of that. You know, we need more of that, I think, because that's going to be the future, and a much more sustainable future that makes more sense. That's more, I think, intelligent. It's not so much of because the current agricultural system—it's really not about producing food. It's about making money. It's a business. And, and that's why we're kind of getting what we get. You know, we get because people can make money doing it, not because it's the best system that we could possibly come <coughs> up with, the most efficient and most, most sustainable, best for the environment, or producing even the best quality food that we could eat. Yeah. Can I chime in on that? You know, I worked on a farm over Rockland County, and you know, everybody says buy organic, and you know, people like this is just for rich people, expensive food. And I work with people, very talented people who know farming and do this. These people, in, in the society we live in, these people will never get paid. They're lucky if they can pay them eight bucks an hour. So I say to people, don't go into farming. I tell people, go into farming if you want to meet a few amazing people and do other things. But we live in a country where most people live on a quarter acre of land. And I say to them, I don't, I'm not going to grow your food anymore. Why don't you start taking responsibility for yourself and get your whole neighborhood and everybody in your neighborhood working? Can you imagine if in one neighborhood, if everybody had their garden and you know the surplus that you had, everybody would have so much food in that whole neighborhood 
that you would take the rest of it and you would give it to some food food kitchen or some what do they call them? Food, food bank or something like that. But you know, we're, we're only like looking, how is somebody else going to do it for me? And it's really like come time for people to take responsibility for yourself. This is the most intimate thing you do. You take a piece of food and you're sticking it in your mouth. And to trust that to people whose only, only interest is making money off you, you're really taking your life in your hands. Well, I, I would agree that not having to become a farmer, we should just, you know, gardening is fine. Farm. You know, just grow a little of our own food. Until there's a food crisis, always a nobody's, gonna, nobody's well, willing to pay what that food is worth. Well, what you touched on, though, is you said that there's this idea that it's elitist. That, you know, when you buy food or anything that your, your neighbor down the road produced, you have to usually pay more than what you can get in the big box stores, right? And that's considered elitist. But... Think about this, okay? We can have people in third world countries working in deplorable conditions for very little pay, produce food and products that get shipped thousands of miles, put in a big box, amazing store that we can go in and buy really cheap. And that's not elitist. That's just considered just folks, right? <laughs> I mean, that makes no sense. If anything, actually, that system would probably meet the definition of elitist more than your local guy down the road who just produces something themselves. And because of our culture, they have to, you know, to make money, even even just a, a, a reasonable profit, not even an unreasonable profit, actually, in terms of being smaller than it could be, you have to pay a little more for it, or maybe a lot more for it than you'd get in the store. Um, so if you really think this through, you know, our system is really backwards in so many ways, and we've got to start writing it. And the only way we're going to do it is, is taking, again, you know, those those cumulative impacts, each of us in our own lives, in whatever influence we have within our communities, our friends, our neighbors, our families, our jobs, community groups, just doing what we can. And it's all going to start adding up. Don't let no, anyone tell you you're just one person and what you do doesn't matter, because it does. Okay? Yeah? There's a bee supply uh, company called Bee Weaver in Navatosa, Texas. They claim they haven't treated their colonies for over 10 years. Yep. And um, um, so, uh, you know, there are bee resistant, uh, uh, I, I suppose there's bees that are resistant to varroa and tracheal mite. Or why, that, why isn't that more uh, profusely, uh, you know, generated? Well, they are. I mean, there's the Russian Queen Breeders Association that's trying to get more out there. There's, there's a lot of it, but, you know, we have this freedom, free society where it's, it's diluted. So we've got the really good stuff, but then you've got a lot of other people selling other stuff and pushing it just as hard or, you know, trying. And so people hear different things and you get, your focus gets shifted and People aren't always thinking, okay, now what's going to be best for the bees, the strongest bees? They're like, oh, well, these guys have like really pretty colored bees that are nice and light color, or these are pure bread, or, you know, these, they just have them at the right price. Sometimes that's what it comes down to. Those, all those factors play a role. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, unfortunately we've created, you know, it's not a simple society and not a simple thing, but so we've got to use our brains and we've got to, make decisions the best we can and then you know no one's gonna we're not none of us gonna be perfect in everything we do but if we start striving and changing and trying to make everything better every day a little bit better a little bit better 
I know there's a Japanese term for that, and I forget what it is, but it's this concept that every day you just try to improve things a little bit more, you'll start to see results, especially if we all start doing that. Up in the corner. Um, eight frame hives experience? No, not really. Um, I just been I started with ten frame hives. That's all my equipment is. You know, it, it's hard to switch. You know, it's good to whatever you start with. It's good to stick with one thing. Otherwise, you end up with two different sizes and it doesn't match. And, um, but you know, from what I understand, eight frame hive it can work really well. It's small. You know, they're less frames, so it's not going to weigh as much. You've got your center of gravity when you're lifting is closer. Uh, to your body, so it's easier to lift. Um, medium supers is what a lot of beekeepers that don't want to lift up heavy stuff, they go with eight frame mediums for all their high bodies and their honey supers because it's you know easier to deal with. Um, it can work well. Just remember, you're going to have two less frames, so you might want to leave an extra, you know. Uh, I, I would leave, you know, at least two mediums or one deep eight frame on top of the brood nest. Well, you know, to me, whether it's 8-frame or 10-frame or top-bar hives or whatever, it doesn't matter to me what kind of box you keep your bees in. What matters is how you're caring for them. So if you're replacing the combs on a regular basis, you're making sure they get good nutrition, and, and, and you know, you're maybe doing some of the other things, put a screen bottom board on there, um, there's no reason why they can't do well. Just, you know, do something for the mites, Keep them healthy, make sure they you know have good food, and keep them dry in the winter. And and that's it's really that simple, that complex. Whatever you want to look at it, I mean that's what it's, that's what's been working for me for the past twenty years. Well, actually ten. It took me about t ten years to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a website? Do you teach an extended class? Yep, yep. I do. It's called DancingBeeGardens.com. And um, it's I do it myself, so it's woefully out of date, and I got to update. I got all kind of. I'm on my way down to North South Carolina right now to teach classes and lead a weekend course down there. Um, and I think I actually got that on on the site, but I often don't get get everything on there. Um, uh, most of my classes that I teach are in Vermont in the spring, um, but you know if I get invited to go somewhere, I'll go. Yeah. As we're getting close to the end here, what three or four points would you want new beekeepers to really know? If you're going to say these are the things that really want you to press the uh, For new beekeepers, just starting out, I, well, first of all, I usually tell you um, there's, a, there's a bunch of, let's see if I can remember. Okay. Um, start with two hives instead of one because, you know, the learning curve is steep and you, you want that um, contrast of one hive to another and just helps, and if one hive dies, hopefully you can repopulate it with the other hive. Uh, it's easier to start with nukes than packages. Try to get local bees if you can, and, and good genetics. Like I said, the Russians grow a sensitive hygiene or hygienic bees. Um, join your local bee club. You know, use this resource. Other beekeepers um, recognize that there's more than one way to do it, and you don't have to do what the other person says you have to do, <laughs> right? Um, there's always another way. It doesn't mean one way is necessarily better than the other. It's what works that counts. Um, if you can, get a mentor. 
someone local who can help answer questions and help you out if you need the help, especially in your first year or two. The other thing I tell beginners is in that first year, open the hive up every week or two weeks and go through it. Look at the frames, look at the bees, look at the brood, learn how to handle the bees, learn how to use the smoker and the hive tool. You can only learn so much from reading books, from going to workshops or presentations like this. In the end, the, what you need is the experience, and the only way you're going to get the experience is to do it. So, why normally you're right, you know, normally you don't want to interfere with the bees too much unnecessarily. But in that first year, you actually do need to do it because it's the only way you're going to get the experience. It's the only way. After that first year, hopefully, you start to see and know from the way the bees are acting, the way they sound, the smells of the hive, and how things look, what looks normal and healthy and what's not. And then in the future, the next year, you just have to pop the inner cover. You peek down between the frames. Oh, yeah, they're building up naturally. I see some worker brood. Everything looks fine. I don't need to go in there. You just cover them back up. But if something doesn't look right, then you, you go in, take it apart, look at the brood nest, look at the queen, how she lay, make sure you know they have disease, see, what's, see if you can see if something's wrong. Um, so, but in the first year, I really encourage people to, to get in there more often than would probably be normally healthy, because that's the only way you're going to... The other thing is, don't be afraid. You know, part of the problem, and, and I was mentioning this to somebody else, that the way to become a really good beekeeper, I'm sorry to say, is that you're going to probably have to kill a lot of bees, because we tend to learn a lot more from our mistakes than our ac accidental successes. The key thing is when a hive dies, you've got to recognize it as the gift they're giving you. Okay, They're giving you the opportunity to be a better beekeeper if you take that opportunity and do an autopsy of the hive. Go through it right away. Don't wait until you know, months later and there's mold everywhere and the mice have gotten in. It's a mess. Go in right away when they die and look at what's left. Where, what's the condition of the brood? How much honey and pollen is in there? What, what's going on? And try to figure out why they died. Because if you can figure out why they died, you can look at what you did in the months or year before that, and you can think about what you're going to do to change things so that that doesn't happen again. And that's how you become a really good beekeeper. Okay? That's how you do it. That's, it's experience. It's just doing it. But you've got to invest yourself. You've got to learn. You've got to take the time to look when they die. Don't just say, oh, they died, and walk away and forget them and leave them sitting there. They had foul brood. You're going to share it with everyone else in the neighborhood. That's not good. Figure out why they died. And then see what you can do to prevent it from happening again. And don't give up. You know, the bees really need us right now. I mean, if it wasn't for beekeepers, it's very likely with this CCD and the mites and all this stuff, the bees would have been wiped out. The bees need us just as much as we need the bees, right? It's an interconnectedness thing in this world. We're all connected, not only with each other. We need each other in our communities, but we need the bees and, and the natural world in a healthy state. And we've got to work for that. That's, that's my belief anyway. So thank you, guys.